Content note. This episode contains discussions of death, grief, rape, homophobia, transphobia, sex, physical violence, and a relationship between cousins. Hi, I'm Elena. And I'm Sophia. And you're listening to Bookshelf Remix, a spoiler-full podcast where two scholars read pop fiction by underrepresented authors and geek out with deep dives. Today we're talking all things The Death of Vivek Oji by Akweke Emezi. The Death of Vivek Oji is a beautifully written work of literary fiction set in a small international community of Nigerians. The book is and isn't about its titular character, and instead, we can think of the title as an event that provokes the community around Vivek to reevaluate their lives and assumptions. Part mystery, under what circumstances did Vivek Oji die? Part coming-of-age tale, not only for Vivek, whose death cut short his journey towards his trans identity, but for his many adolescent friends, who are also discovering their identities. This novel is both heartbreaking and joyous. I don't think you can read it and not come away contemplating existence, and what it means to live well and authentically. So because of the book's heavy themes, we have decided to focus on only three for the podcast, but this is definitely a book that stays with you long after reading it, and has many layers. For the sake of time, however, we will focus on talking about our experience reading The Death of Vivek Oji and the role of normativity in this episode, and we'll tackle the themes of community and the ending of the book in part two. So Sophia, how did you feel about this book? That's a great question. I think um, what's kind of funny, and this is like a little insider information on how sort of these, this podcast comes together, is that uh, Elena is always ahead of me on the reading <laughs> schedule. I always get to the books later. So I had a little bit of insight that this book was maybe going to be kind of challenging when I went in. I, I think also predictably because it's literary fiction, right? And I think literary fiction, for me at least, always kind of forces me to really work to figure out what what are the themes that hold the book together because they don't necessarily have like a unified plot that kind of forces you to, or that that kind of holds it together for you. Literary fiction, I often find myself reaching the end and going, what was this even about? You mean it's and not formulaic? I, it is. It can, it, I think it is actually very formulaic in some ways because it's often a coming-of-age tale, and this is definitely a coming-of-age tale. So that part of literary fiction is a genre. I do think it's a genre. But beyond being oftentimes a coming-of-age tale, or maybe just even a journey of self-discovery for characters who are a little on the old side to be coming-of-age in the way that we think about coming-of-age. I think still a lot of times reading literary fiction, it's hard to figure out, like, why did I need this coming-of-age tale in my life? You know, what, what was this really about that sets it apart from other narratives? And I think at the death of Vivek Oji, what makes that even more complicated is that that and we were discussing this a little bit before we started recording, is I assumed when I read the title that Vivek would be the main character uh, because it's the death of Vivek Oji. And I ended up sort of finding that it is more a description of the event that creates the circumstances under which this narrative take place. So the death of Vivek Oji becomes almost a prompt to really explore not only Vivek's identity as the titular character, but also the identities of everyone around him, not just his friends who are his age and discovering who they're going to be in adulthood, but also the adults who have inherited a particular sort of societal view that's shaped their lives for 
better and for worse, or has or hasn't kind of complemented maybe their own uh, lifestyle preferences. So I think a lot of the work in reading this book for me was trying to figure out, you know, okay, why are we going off on these sort of side adventures with various characters when I was expecting to immediately be introduced to Vivek <laughs> and to stick with him the entire time? And uh, because to be clear to everyone, Vivek has died when we start the book. There's a brief preface or prelude of like his parents um, before his mom gets pregnant, but Vivek is dead. And although there are kind of ghostly appearances of Vivek speaking for himself throughout the book, it is mostly a novel about people dealing with his death, with the grief they carry for him. Yeah. And, you know, it's a common way actually to start books with the death of a main character who is then going to be explored throughout the narrative and sort of can be part mystery to figure out what happened to them. Or it could just be, you know, that's just the prompt for examining their life in general. But this book doesn't take quite that linear approach to exploring Vivek. And it it does end up, I think, being a lot more about community and also about how society shapes you and forces you into particular forms of lifestyle and the resistance that you see a lot more in the younger generation that he belongs to versus the older generation who have just kind of accepted that there is a particular prescribed way that they have to live their lives. And they don't always follow it, but they do sort of expect except that that is the way it's supposed to be. So that's that's a big part of the book. The other thing that made it really challenging that I enjoyed, but it was definitely different and made me think a lot about reading this novel. I mean, first of all, the prose is amazing. I enjoyed that like level of it in a way. I'm not sure that I've enjoyed our other books. Um, but I also think, you know, I'm not a trans person. So the experience of reading about Vivek was completely different in that sense. I think it's always good to read books that give you insight into perspectives that are not your own. But this is not like, in my opinion, maybe um, Elena can talk a little bit more about this as well. This is not a book necessarily for us. You know, it doesn't do I feel like, for example, with Mexican Gothic, that's a book that very much translates itself to a general audience. And that was something I didn't really enjoy about the text. Because as a Mexican American person, I was like, I want something written for me, uh, because I don't get that. So I think this book is written for trans people for queer people. And I, I don't think that it and for Nigerian people. Oh, yeah. And for Nigerian people. And I don't think it sees itself as I have to explain myself to everybody else. I find that refreshing. Mm hmm personally. Yeah, I mean, that's a place that in thinking about the book more and talking to you about it, I've kind of gotten to I've gotten to this place of saying, oh, this book is just not for me. And I don't mean that in a like, oh, it's not a genre I like, or it's not like a story to the people. I won't to read it. <laughs> no, but I mean, because some there are books that are just not for me, you know, people enjoy them. It, I'm not their demographic, whatever. But this is a bit more complicated. So I read the book. And I was like, this is a solid four stars. I was like, the writing is beautiful. There's nothing wrong with the book. The end was very moving. But I was just there was something I couldn't put my finger on. And I was like, why am I not connecting? Because 
I'm the one who suggested this book. I saw so much hype about it. Everyone that I know personally and everyone that I follow on social media who's read it is like, this is amazing. This is one of the best books like that have come out in the past few years. And it just fell kind of flat for me. And I couldn't understand why, because there was nothing objectively wrong with the book. So then I was just like, well, maybe it's, you know, I, I'm not queer or I'm not queer in this way. And so maybe it doesn't speak to me. And then talking to Sophia, you you just mentioned like, well, maybe this is what it feels like to be a white man reading <laughs> <laughs> reading books that aren't meant for him. And I was like, that... That is fascinating because since reading The Death of Vivek Ochi, I've read other books written by trans people and trans women. And for example, I read The Transition Baby by Tori Peters. And, you know, Tori Peters is a white American woman. And the way she wrote her book kind of, yes, absolutely shows a swath of the trans community in North America and in New York specifically. But there were so many reference points and things that you can latch onto as a North American and as someone who is familiar with that culture. Whilst Imezi is kind of like, this is a slice of life of a Southern Nigerian community. And that's what it is. Like, as you're saying, it's not, I want to be careful because it's not that it's obscure or deliberately kind of putting up barriers of like, you can't understand if you're not from here. But it's more like, this is how people live their lives. These are the values they have. This is how Vivek grows up and does his thing. And I'm not going to apologize for that, but I'm also not going to package it for a Western audience. So at first I was like, oh, maybe it's because, you know, it, it speaks of queerness and transness that I can never quite grasp because of my personal experience. But then I was like, it's more than that. It's not for a Western audience. And at the back of the book, the author description, it says, Akweke Mezi is a writer and video artist based in liminal spaces. And at first I kind of rolled my eyes. I'm like, okay, Deleuze and Guattari. But this idea of liminal spaces, like this book is for a liminal space. This book is not written in a way for like the machine that is big English speaking publishing. And in that sense, it blows my mind. <laughs> so I have evolved a lot after like months of like stewing and thinking about this book. <laughs> That's what, yeah, that was the kind of the thing that really struck me about it and that I really like as a reader. So like full disclosure, I studied post-colonial literature basically pretty intensely starting from undergrad and up through my PhD. Those are studies that have stayed with me both theoretically and in terms of the literature that I read. So I'm quite used to reading books that are very much not about my lived experience and that do not address me in any way, especially as a comparative literature scholar as well, because you have to enter a lot of books that are written in another language and sometimes are not even translated. And then within that, they may be about characters who belong to a different class, a different time period, just so many different norms that you have to deal with that just don't make sense to you. So I feel like in that sense, I was kind of prepared for the novel or just like sort of know what to expect from a novel that's coming out of like the Anglophone tradition, which Anglophone being, you know, outside of 
the US and the UK. Although you could probably categorize like Irish literature also as Anglophone as opposed to say like British literature would be the privileged discourse. So I feel like I kind of came into it with a lot of reading experience with reading books that do not like translate themselves for me or sort of lay themselves bare for my ignorance. But I really enjoy that. What I don't like, I get really tired of like the patronizing tone of a lot of books that are like, and let me tell you about, or let me give you this stereotype that you've probably seen a thousand. Let me, let me tell you about tacos uh, and the taco stands <laughs> in Mexico city. And it's just like, no, like I could have, I could have sorted it out for myself. Like give me something That's new. Like, nothing in this book was there to make the reader comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a deliberate choice. And I really respect that. Yeah, I think in the end, all sort of everything comes together, whether it's the author description, like you said, talking about liminal spaces, once you've read the book, and you really give it a lot of thought, you realize, yeah, that makes sense, you know, and there should be books should not always be trying to reach literally everybody. You know, I mean, I think as you advance as a reader, you may find yourself capable of entering into books that you know, aren't written for you and being able to accept. I don't like fully get this, but it's kind of like, you know, being a connoisseur of anything. It's fun to get a new experience and just have that, that part of the newness instead of having to read the same things over and over again. But yeah, I mean, I think that there should be a lot more books for small audiences. You know, not every book has to be like the big bestseller. Well, maybe for companies, every book does have to be the big yeah. bestseller to hit that bottom line. But as a reader, I think it's a, it can become a lot of fun. You know, people always say about reading, oh, the value of reading is to become more empathetic and to see things from other people's point of view. But I think it's very rare, actually, to read a book that truly challenges your point of view and actually truly demands that you set it aside and deal with a radically different point of view from your own. And I think that that is what this book offered in a way that was really refreshing and is like a great opportunity, even though it may be challenging. I often also always find that the books that I think, I don't really know what to do with this, end up being the books I love talking about the most because it's like, I don't, I've got to work through this. I, I honestly this thought out. like three months ago, I was just like, Sophia, what are we going to talk about? Like, I have nothing to say about this book. And it took like 10 minutes and then we're like, Oh, wait, we have hours of content. This is fine. <laughs> well, see, that's why I say I had the benefit of you having read the book before me, because I knew that you were a little bit stumped. So going into the reading, I was like, all right, you know, you got to mine this text for ideas <laughs> for content, because it's, it's not going to be the easiest for coming up with like a unified theme or something to talk about. So, you know, I think that was a benefit too. when one of us reads ahead of the other, then that can give a little bit of insight going in so that, you know, both of us aren't like blindsided at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> all right, shall we take a break? Absolutely. Hey listeners, Elena here. I want to share some exciting news. We now have Ko-fi membership tiers. Ko-fi is a donation platform that allows you to support Bookshelf Remix with a small monthly donation. Starting at only $1, you can have access to our secret Discord, ad-free episodes, and bonus episodes on movies, TV shows, and extra books. At the $10 level, you can even redeem a personalized reading list from Sophia and myself. So if you can spare at least $1 a month, head to ko forward slash BR pod and join us. 
Behind the Stacks. And we're back. So for our second session today, we are going to actually be talking about something that really pervades the novel, which is the question of normativity. So like we talked about a little bit in the previous segment, this novel has a lot of characters. It's got a lot of shifts in perspective. And one of the challenges is to kind of figure out what is the overarching story when you have so many different characters, so many different experiences cycling through that you as the reader have to sort of figure out what is the relationship that these characters bear to each other that is that sort of transcends the fact that they just happen to know each other as characters. And to me, the, one of the things that really unites all of these characters is this question of questioning normativity. This is a queer book. It's not, you know, focused on a single queer identity. And even beyond that, it isn't necessarily focused purely on queerness in maybe the ways that we're used to seeing it. It also queers heteronormativity, for example. So to start, we're just going to quickly go through some definitions of normativity, and then we're going to move into our discussion of why that's so important for this book. To me, normativity has to be a two-part definition. First, we have to understand some of the foundational assumptions behind the concept of being quote-unquote normal. And then we have to begin to understand how what is normal is a social construct. Because a lot of times it's easy to mistake what we think of as normal for natural, as if it's inherent to us as like the human species or something. So that's kind of the idea of normal as, or I guess what I'm trying to say is let's think about normal as a social construct and not as something that's natural or inherent. Normativity in the end is the way that a society forces or compels its members to adhere often violently or maybe always violently to the shared definition of what is normal. In this novel, we're dealing with homonormativity especially. So the foundational assumption of the society of the Niger wives and their families is that romantic or sexual relationships take place between members of the opposite sex, a man well, and so, a woman. Wait, do you mean homonormativity or heteronormativity? Oh, heteronormativity. Well, probably both. Heteronormativity. Oh, you're right. Heteronormativity. <laughs> 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 See, normativity. <laughs> it's, it's stuck right on back into my definition. Should I redo that or do we just want to leave it there as a teachable moment? It's uh, up to you. <laughs> That's fine. I'll leave it in. I'll, I'll stand behind my heteronormative slip. So anyway, yeah. So I mean, heteronormativity is what we're dealing with in this novel. So the foundational assumption of the society of the Niger wives and their families is that romantic or sexual relationships in the novel take place between members of the opposite sex, a man and a woman, assuming that those are the only two options as well, yeah. male and female. <laughs> Much of the novel will explore the secret lives this heteronormativity gives birth to and the way characters are forced into hiding their true selves, preferences, and loves because they don't fit this heteronormative standard. And you had a, a quote to kind of illustrate that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's actually chapter four in its entirety, which is kind of interesting. It's a very short chapter. You'll find this with the Vivek chapters for anybody who reads it, is that he has these very 
very short, pithy chapters that are incredibly insightful and sort of philosophical. So this is chapter four. I'm not what anyone thinks I am. I never was. I didn't have the mouth to put into words, to say what was wrong, to change the things I felt I needed to change. And every day it was difficult, walking around and knowing that people saw me one way, knowing that they were wrong, so completely wrong, that the real me was invisible to them. It didn't even exist to them. So if nobody sees you, are you still there? And I think what's really powerful about these lines is it shows the way that Vivek as a character, in my opinion, is never really hiding who he is. He's always himself. Anybody looking at him in theory could have realized who he was. He wasn't hiding it. But because none of them have a shared societal language that accepts Vivek's identity. He too can't put into language what he's going through, what he experiences, what he wants, in short, who he is, because that experience doesn't exist as something you can give voice to in that society. And that is the, the and choice. And I think that right? part of the book is also about if you don't have the language, how do you create a space for that language to develop. And so I think you're right by saying that Vivek doesn't hide. This is not like a coming out story, but he does retreat at some point. Mm -hmm. And we do see signs of situational depression and he won't come out of his room and he won't eat. And this kind of leads me into discussing how normativity can be seen from a disability perspective. So this is... Elena's corner with disability of the podcast because I I think it's worth noting that Akweke Mezi is a disabled person as well and that the link between Vivek's identity being seen or being not seen to varying degrees is woven into physical illness and ailments and kind of signs of physical perishing as opposed to flourishing throughout the book. And so I think that's important to note because I think as a society, we're getting more used to the idea of compulsory heterosexuality or compulsory masculinity, these ideas, but there's not as much conversation about compulsory able-bodiedness. And so I think it's interesting to read the book with the lens of queerness as it is related to sexuality and sexual identity and gender identity, but there is also the through line of the queerness of the disabled body throughout the book. So that's that's just my corner, <laughs> end of corner here. No, I mean, you could write a whole journal article on that <laughs> subject, right? Like disability in this novel, because it is such a foundational part of Vivek. He has many different maybe ailments throughout the narrative, as you were pointing out when we were off air as well. And those, you know, it's hard to say because the novel just has them there. It doesn't necessarily come to any interpretive conclusions for you. So, you know, are the seizures, for example, are those a psychological symptom or that's coming into sort of like physical being? Or is that because they disappear? Or is that just, you know, that he had happened to have seizures and they went into remission? These are questions that are never answered in the novel. So it's definitely, I feel like it is a part of, hey, you know, life is just complicated and bodies don't come in one form and neither do desires or identities. And you kind of have to feel each situation out 
for how to manage it in each situation. I think at the same time, also, you know, this is very much a novel about normative bodies, normative mindsets, because Mm -hmm. we also have, for example, the character of Elizabeth, who is a faster runner than all of the The male characters. Yeah. And Osita is the only character who doesn't seem to be intimidated or thrown off by this as a male. So that's, you know, that's a discussion that takes place as well. What are female bodies versus male bodies supposed to be capable of? And how does that turn out to not be true? And and then what, what are the outcomes of that sort of that societal expectation in terms of how then people deal with the reality that is Elizabeth is a fast runner. (laughs) Yeah, and the fact that I don't think we've mentioned, but the Niger wives is a term that refers to women from abroad, from outside of Nigeria, who marry Nigerian men and then come to live there. So there's also this space of a kind of hybrid community or kind of immigrant community. So you have, I mean, Kavita... Vivek's mother is Indian and Mm -hmm. you have some people whose like mothers are like white Scottish women you have Belgian people you have like other African countries represented so it is a very diverse community and I think that also offers this basis of the question of belonging and who is your community and I think in a way and we'll probably discuss this more in the second episode but this diverse community is a model for the younger generation to build their own chosen family and their own chosen community but we'll talk about that more later just before we close out I did want to note that in addition to the theme of normativity being explored with Vivek and his peers there is also the story of his parents his uncle and aunts and other random people who live in their village and as you're saying Sophia even within a kind of strict male female binary or heterosexual relationships there are portrayals of kind of power dynamics being turned on their heads and other ways of like queering the norm that happen even within male female relationships and in the parents generation and i'm i'm thinking it's not purposeful in the sense that the younger generation might feel freer to experiment and do these things but this is what their parents are capable of they're capable of realizing oh yeah my wife is the breadwinner and has independent means outside of our marriage and I can be okay with that and find that empowering so that's like an example of the limits of what they're capable of well and I think also you know one thing to keep in mind with the younger versus older generation when you're an adolescent coming into adulthood that is the period of experimentation as well you know where so much about who you'll be in the future is decided so it's hard to say sort of what the histories of experimentation were that existed for these other characters beforehand but the the insights that we get indicate fairly heteronormative options in terms of how they were exploratory like maybe chica desires his brother's wife that's uh non-normative but still heteronormative to be you know kind of skirting that border or boundary of incest a little bit as well even though not biological incest i think you know relationships between historically relationships between what do you call it uh in-laws in in-laws 
do sit in sort of an uncomfortable place in terms of whether they get categorized as incest or not in a variety of cultures. You know, sometimes it's perfectly acceptable and other times it's absolutely taboo. So that's kind of fascinating. I think, you know, it is worth talking about maybe Chisholm and Ebenezer a little bit because we were both kind of flummoxed by that chapter. It feels like it very much sort of takes us out of all of the main narratives. And that was, but it also is a chapter that kind of crystallizes a lot of things, maybe primarily the role of Riot and what they're, the role they're going to play in this narrative. But I think, you know, as you were mentioning, there is this character whose wife is the primary breadwinner and he's fine with it when he marries her. You know, he thinks, I love this woman, this is who I want to be with. But as time goes on, not it's not really that his mindset changes, but he gets so much pressure from everybody around him. And this is what we mean by this, the societal violence of normativity is that you have the pressures of society to fit what it defines as the norm. And it's not that anything has changed about you, but maybe you just don't have the strength or the wherewithal to keep standing up to that pressure over time. And so there is a period in the novel for this character Ebenezer where he drifts away from his wife, starts an affair with another woman, and starts contemplating what his life could be like if he had a more normative relationship and wasn't married to this woman who's filling what he thinks or what the people around him think is the man's role. And who has failed to produce children. Very important point. Yeah, key, key plot point and shows no inclination to have any, which is perfectly fine no actually like she gets like she gets tested and stuff but like and then she's like you should get tested and he's like how dare you attack my manliness and then she gets upset with him she's like okay i'm done like you can't keep putting this on me i'm gonna keep living my life and so that's part of it as well yeah and that's a very common i think story and that sort of transcends cultures that this is this is something that happens who who is going to take responsibility or who you know, is everybody going to be tested for fertility or not in the pursuit of children? So yeah, in the end, he ends up coming around in his in his own coming of age story in this chapter, he finally realizes that why not go and get tested and figure out if it's me and let's move forward with our lives. And I don't care what other people think I want to be with this woman. She's the one who, you know, matters to me. So as she is, I want her because as she, so she, is. Ha- she makes a show of bravery as the market is burning down. And she just like really tries to take as much of her produce off of the shelves. And while like the woman he's been having an affair with is just like, oh, just come hide with me. And then he sees his wife like being really valiant. And he's like, no, she's the one I want to be with. And she's like the one that kind of deserves my respect in a way, which is interesting given the end of the book. And I I thought like the end of the chapter with Ebenezer and Chisholm ends with like the market burnt down. And it was years until the government built it up again. And so there was like these like very passing mentions of like politics and economics as well Mm -hmm. in the novel and mention of, you know, anti-Muslim sentiment and anti-Northern sentiment. So there's like subtle things. But again, it's not like here is an info dump about the politics of Nigeria. Yeah, this book is not a textbook. You know, some novels, when they pick up sort of like what, maybe to us are foreign topics, assuming that this novel is written for Nigerians, maybe not foreign to its intended audience. But a lot of novels can start to get into kind of textbook territory of sort of over explaining themselves and again, in order to reach a wider audience. And I think this is the freedom that literary fiction does give a lot of authors as well is to 
not explain things to just kind of gesture to them and say, you know, if you want to figure out what the circumstances are that created this situation, like you're welcome to go and research geopolitics. I'm just going to hint that that might play a little bit of a role. And again, these are the moments when like entire journal articles are written, you know, on the geopolitical backdrop of say the death of Vivek Oji. And I think that's, that's fun. That's fun when novels leave you that room to kind of explore and play with them after the fact. I think this is a good place to stop. And we will continue our discussion in two weeks with part two. So, Sophia, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at The Metropolitanist, at Metropolitanist on Twitter, or on my website, MaisonMetropolitanist.com. I post on all things related to my research areas on those platforms. Elena, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Elena G. Mamoril, on Instagram at Spinoodler, and on my website, ElenaGotiMamoril.com. If you want even more of my voice in your ears, you can listen to my other podcast, Philosophy Casting Call. And before we close out, Sophia, can you tell everyone where they can find more Bookshelf Remix? You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Bookshelf Remix and rate, review, and follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or wherever you listen. This helps more people discover the show. You can email us at bookshelfremix at gmail.com. Our transcripts live on ko-fi-coffee.com slash brpod for everyone, linked in the description. While you're there, please consider supporting us. With your monthly support, we will be able to offer bonus content like a secret Discord, live watches, mailbags, and more. And we already have that Discord. (laughs) Yes, we have a Discord, and we will be releasing our uncut, full-length episodes if you want even more tidbits and bloopers or random tangents that we might go on. And we have a bonus episode of Crazy Rich Asians, the movie that's ready to go. So if you become a monthly supporter, you can have access to all of that. So text someone who loves literary fiction about the show and remember to give your bookshelf a good remake.